If you've got a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 21. Uh, if this is your first time at Providence or one of the uh, earlier, you know, one of, one of your first times, something that's just pretty normal for us is we just walk through books of the Bible um, and we just seek to understand what, what the Lord has written in His Word. And so that brings us this morning through this long trek we've been in in Luke, probably around 70 sermons by now, um, brings us to chapter 21, um, which it's where Jesus deals with the end times. Uh, theological terms, this is called eschatology. Eschaton meaning last, ology, study of. So literally this is the study of the last things. And in God's providence, uh, it's amazing that we actually land on this this week. In, in fact, I think it would have been better if we'd landed on it last week. Because I don't know if you guys heard about this, but there was some wacko predicting that the world would end last Saturday. Did any of you guys hear about that's yeah some guy and that's not like that abnormal unfortunately this happens all the time with people predicting the end of the world and and for people who claim the name of christ and do that right i'm not talking about um fringe groups or cults like the jehovah's witnesses they're, they're they've missed nine times and counting thus far in predicting the end of the world but for people who claim the name of Christ, the question I want to ask them when they try to predict the end of the world, I, can you not read? Because it is clear, Matthew 24, 36, but about that day, no one knows the day or the hour. And so can they not read or, or do they think that Jesus was wrong? And so just a little tip here, if you meet someone and they start to tell you that they know when the world's going to end, run away fast. But eschatology, that's what we've got before us this morning. Uh, today, to, honestly, going to be a little bit heady. Uh, it just is what it is. Um, we've got a ton to go through. There's no way I'm going to be able to go through all of this and answer all the little interesting questions that everybody's going to want to have answered. So I'll apologize for that uh, ahead of time. Just not going to have time to do all of that because we've got a ton to pour through as it is. But even if I had time to answer all or try to answer all the little questions we might have, I could argue for a position, but I could not answer them definitively. Because you can't answer definitively as it relates to the nitty gritty of the end times. Prophecy is inherently difficult to understand and to interpret. And so we need to be very humble as we approach it. I mean, just to give you an example, like we, we talk a lot about how, you know, the, the, the folks at the time of Jesus missed it. They missed who he was because he was not what they were expecting. Right. They had read prophecy. They thought it was going to be this one thing. But Jesus was something entirely other. Unless you're like, well, that's all the scribes and the Pharisees. John the Baptist the one who was the forerunner of Jesus, the one whom Jesus said, there's not a better man than this guy. The one who introduced Jesus as the Messiah and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Later on in his own ministry, he began to question. So he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, hey, um, are you the one or not? Should we be looking for someone else? Because he wasn't exactly what he was expecting based upon prophetic literature. 
what happened with John and what happened with a lot of these people is they confused the second coming of Christ with the first coming of Christ. They confused, thought he was going to bring in a kingdom at that point. They didn't realize he was coming first as a suffering servant. And so they confused these things. And so John believed absolutely that all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah would be fulfilled. What he didn't properly understand was the way in which they would be fulfilled. And so if believers like John the Baptist could have problems, you know, with predictions as it related to Jesus's first coming, what should that teach us about our own potential problems as we think about Jesus's second coming? And so we need to be super humble, need to be super gracious with this and not confuse the biblically clear and therefore closed handed theological issues as it relates to the end times with the biblically less clear, open handed issues as it relates to the end times. And we're not going to have I'm not going to deal a whole lot with these closed handed and open handed day, but I do want to trot them out to you real quick because I think that maybe helpful, even if you're not a Christian in here, it may just give you some vocabulary to work with. And so those items that are in a closed hand that we have got to hold on to, these are non-debatables, clear in Scripture as it relates to the end times. One of them is that Jesus is going to return. Okay, that's not debatable. He's returning. This is foundational Christian belief. It's all over Scriptures. We will deal with that one today, uh, primarily. It will be, he'll be, it'll be physical. It'll be visible. That's in the closed hand. Also in the closed hand is the resurrection of unbelievers and believers. That's in the closed hand. Judgment of believers and unbelievers. That's in the closed hand. And an assignment into eternal destinies of heaven or hell. That's in a closed hand. These are clear in Scripture. We can debate some of the specifics inside of each of those as to the timing and nature of some of them. But those four things... The return of Christ, resurrection of believers and unbelievers, judgment of believers and unbelievers, and assignment into eternal destinies of heaven or hell. Those are in the closed hand, not open to debate. On the other hand, the various views as it relates to the nature of the millennium, whether that's literal or figurative, the nature of the great tribulation, will the church be here or not, and the timing and then the nature of that rapture, we have to hold those in an open hand. Because those three things are not clear in Scripture. And so we hold those in an open hand. And when we confuse what's open with what's closed, we get ourselves into trouble. And so I tell you all of that just to remind us we've got to be humble and we've got to major on the majors when we approach the idea of the end times. And that's what we're going to try to do today as we look at what Jesus and not wackos have said about the end times. And Jesus is going to divide this really into two parts. He's going to be prophesying about the coming destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then he's going to teach about the end of the world using the destruction of Jerusalem as an example because his disciples are familiar with Jerusalem. And so Charles Spurgeon said it kind of served, the destruction of Jerusalem kind of served as a dress rehearsal for what was to come at the end. But everything that Jesus speaks of has connotations for us right now because the entire time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming are the last days. That entire time. And so through this like initial fulfillment, but then a, a later greater fulfillment, 
initial with Jerusalem, greater at the end of time. Through teaching that way, Jesus is going to give us four things to keep in mind as we look towards the end of the world. And so let's read it in its entirety to get it in, it in our minds, and then we'll go back through it a little bit at a time and make our way through it. So Luke chapter 21, start in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For These things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these, days of are, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. In Jerusalem, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, Daniel Seven that John read earlier. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leap, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until, until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I'm not going to deal a whole lot with that, though that is an interpretive bomb. 
generation. What is that? More than likely he's referring to those people in Jerusalem at that time who would see the destruction of Jerusalem. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake. Stay awake. At all times. Praying. That you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. That's why this is called the Olivet Discourse. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple. To hear him. And so here we are. It's probably Wednesday in the last week of Jesus's life. He's entered triumphal entry on Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. He's been teaching Wednesday. He's still teaching Thursday night will be the Lord's. Uh, he'll institute the Lord's Supper. He'll be betrayed, be beaten Friday. He'll be crucified. We're two days before Jesus dies for the sins of the world. And he's teaching at the temple. And so verse five, again, the disciples you know, are seeing how it's adorned with noble stones and offerings. And Jesus says to them, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so when Jesus speaks these words about the temple to the disciples, this is dumbfounding to them. They, they cannot comprehend this. The temple is going to be destroyed. What are you talking about? This is where we commune with God. This is where sacrifices for sin are made. And Jesus is basically telling them, not anymore. You don't need the shadows anymore because the substance is here. You no longer need a temple because I'm the temple. You no longer need a priest because I'm the great high priest. You no longer need temporary sacrifices because I'm the once for all ultimate sacrifice for sins. And so you've got this temple, one of the wonders of the world, up on a hill, plated with gold, gleaming in the sun, and it's going to be destroyed AD 70 by the Romans. But the disciples at this point are thinking destruction of the temple equals end of the world. They don't realize that these are two separate things and realize, as we do today, that they are separated by at least almost 2,000 years. AD 70, it's 2017. Jesus still hadn't come back. And so the disciples ask in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of these things that they are about to take place? And Jesus answers, giving up, you know, He's going to begin to answer them by speaking both of the destruction of Jerusalem as well as the end of the world. And so he says to them, verse eight, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first little practical thing that Jesus gives us here about the end of the world is do not be led astray by doomsday deceivers. All right, do not be led astray by doomsday deceivers. He says that many are going to come claiming to be Christ or claiming like the dude last week 
that the time is at hand. And he says, do not go after them. And so just a word of caution, especially to newer Christians or older ones that maybe have succumbed to this. You've got to be careful listening to wacko teachers who say all kinds of crazy things about the second coming, breaking out all these crazy charts and diagrams, and it's almost always wrapped in an American-centric way of viewing the world, and thus they speculate on all these biblical prophecies based upon America's foreign policy toward Israel and the Middle East. And Jesus says, calm down, do not be led astray. And folks, just straight up a fascination with the terrible and the tragic and the secret and the startling or unclear aspects of the second coming of Christ smells to me very little of biblical Christianity and smells a whole lot more like conspiracy theory than a love of Christ and a thought of rejoicing at his return. We should not be alarmed, but anticipatory. And so don't be deceived by craziness. It's out there. If you have questions about what might be crazy or not crazy, I'd be glad to talk to you about that. Don't go crazy. Don't be led astray. Okay? And then secondly, he says, do not be terrified. Terrified of what? Terrified of birth pains. That's how we'll put it. So number two, do not be terrified by birth pains. Pangs. You look at verse 9, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. We saw this very clearly happen in the book of Acts. People being brought before kings and governors, and they're having a chance to speak of Christ. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. He's not saying, I mean, he just said some of you might die. So he's not saying, like, this is a comforting, like a proverbial, I'm going to be with you. You won't lose anything of eternal value. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And so, as we're talking about not being terrified by birth pains, we need to understand that, that, you know, we're seeing birth pains right now. Right now, all around us, just as the disciples did in their day. Okay? These are the beginnings of birth pains, and we're seeing them like the disciples did, because like them, we are living in the last days. The whole time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, those are last days. And so all of these signs, natural disasters, wars, persecution, these characterize that entire period. I saw something, I think there's only been 68 years in the history of the world since Jesus uh, ascended into heaven where there's not been war somewhere in the world. And so this is going on, this characterizes life right now. Until he comes again, life will be like this. And so you can think of it as like a, a, a woman 
who is in labor, right, getting ready to give birth. I've watched Sarah do this four times, three times without drugs. I would have taken the drugs, but she chose not to. But you know how it goes. You, you're in labor, you're in pain, right? It starts and you're in pain and they're so long apart or whatever your contractions are and they hurt, but they get shorter and they get more painful. And then right before you give birth, it gets massively worse. That's kind of like what this, the end will be. This will characterize the entire time. Wars and tumults and tribulations and all this. But right before the end, we can expect persecution. We can expect tribulation to increase. And this idea of persecution in America, comfy, cozy, comfortable America, we don't really think about it. We don't really understand it. I work hard with my girls trying to help them understand that the life we live on multiple levels, just, pra- just materially, practically, the life we live here in Williamson County, Tennessee, is not normal. This is not normal life. This is not the way the rest of the world lives. But we also as a church need to do the same thing and understand that the, the, the freedoms we have to, to worship and to proclaim the name of Christ, this is not normal to the rest of, our, of the world. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, this is not typical. This is not the way it goes. And across history, what we experience, this is not the norm. I mean, all of the apostles died a martyr's death, except John. All he was was boiled alive and then shipped off to Patmos in exile. Just to give you some scale, it's estimated that 70 million Christians have given their life for Christ, died for the faith over the last 2,000 years. 45 million of those in the 20th century alone. In the first 10 years of this 20, did I say 20th century, but 1900s, 45 million. In the first 10 years of the 21st century, it's estimated that around 270 Christians have been killed for the faith on average per day. Around a million. We don't talk about it. We don't see it. We don't look at it. We don't think about it. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus is saying what they are already experiencing, which is a great tribulation, is it not? Is what will come for us as well. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Jesus is not talking about salvation by works here, but rather that perseverance is the proof that our profession of faith is real. And we don't just look back on some date when we prayed some prayer. We look at our life. Are we walking with Christ? Are we persevering with Christ? That's how you know it's real. One old evangelist said it well. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. You know he's Baptist. That alliteration. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. And so opposition from the government and legal authorities will be harsh. That's coming. Rejection by family and friends will be heartbreaking, but it's going to happen. So get ready. But don't be terrified. God will be with us as He has always been with His people. 
through tribulations and through difficulties. Because even as we are, verse 16, put to death, and verse 17, hated by all for Christ's namesake, he, we, he will be with us in a very dear way. Again, that's what verse 18 is all about, saying the hair of your head will not perish, not one of them. He'll be with us. And so all that's going on around right now is part of this, but it will ever increasingly get worse. But don't be terrified. Jesus will be with his people just as he's always been. And he'll give us the words to say and the ability to endure. And so know it's coming, but don't live in fear. Right? Do not be terrified of the birth pains. They have to come first before the appearance of the baby. Likewise, these have to come first before the appearance of the joy of Christ. Just as the baby's joyful when they're born. Christ, when we sing all the pain that my wife experienced in giving birth, as soon as the baby, whether it's Haley or Claire or Kira, even as soon as the baby is out, no pain, just joy. That's the way it will be for us. And so number one, do not be led away by doomsday deceivers. Number two, do not be terrified of birth pains. And now number three, Jesus is going to just lay out the basics of what the end will be like. And so number three, I didn't have a great verb that I could pull out of straight out of the text. So I just put understand the basics of what the end will be like. All right, number three, understand the basics of what the end will be like. And so again, we're going to have Jesus use the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, this is heady, I get it, but it is what it is. He's going to use the destruction of Jerusalem, which he's prophesying about specifically in verses 20 through 24. He's going to use that as a type or a foreshadowing of the end of the world. And prophecy works like this so often throughout the scriptures. You've got stuff that's happening but it's pointing to something even greater that's, going to, that's still to come. You have an initial fulfillment, and then you have the ultimate fulfillment. This is all over the Bible. I could take you to a million places. I'll just give you two easy ones. Abraham, being promised land, seed, and blessing. That's initially fulfilled with the Israelites in the promised land. But that's not its real fulfillment. That's not its ultimate fulfillment. Ultimate fulfillment is all believers of all times in the new heavens and the new earth. Another one, Moses says that a prophet like him will arise. And that finds its initial fulfillment in Joshua. But it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. On and on and on we could go with this. This is just how prophecy works. And so to give you maybe a non-biblical, just a, a word, you know, a way to imagine this, think about mountains for a minute. Our ladies, uh, 40 of them are coming back from the Smokies. A week from tomorrow, uh, my family will head to Colorado to visit Sarah's family. And when you fly into Denver in particular, you land in like the prairie. And as you look west towards the mountains, it just looks like a, a, a wall of mountains, just like a, a flat, you know, row of mountains. But once you drive into the mountains, you start to realize, oh, man, this peak is actually like 300 miles from this peak back here. They looked like they were side by side, but once you get into them, you see that they're separated by such a great distance. From, from afar, it looks flat, but drive in, you realize how far apart they are. This is so it is with Jesus here. He looks beyond just the close mountains of impending judgment upon Jerusalem to the far mountains of the last judgment of all. And he weaves these together and uses the first to help describe the last. And so let's just talk about Jerusalem for a minute. Jesus already prophesied about the destruction of the temple. Now he talks about 
the destruction of the entire city. And so verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Like this is predicted, Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. 97,000, I think, were taken captive in AD 70. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so that word in verse 20, desolation, Jesus is calling attention back to Daniel chapter 9 and the abomination of desolation. All right? That is, he's stating how what's about to happen in Jerusalem in AD 70 and the desecration of the temple that's going to take place is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. And it's actually kind of a second fulfillment. The first one took place about 200 years before this. You had Antiochus Epiphany sacrifice a pig in the Holy of Holies. But Jesus is saying that He's saying here that he's looking forward. He's not looking backward on that. He's saying that's there's something like that that's still to come. And it did. 70 A.D. Titus, the general of the Roman army, son of Vespasian, the emperor. Titus would go on to become emperor himself. He sacks Jerusalem and he burns the temple at the end of July in the year 70. And as the soldiers, the gold-plated stones start melting, they literally rip all the stones apart to get at that melted gold, to pillage everything in it. And so just kind of historical context for a minute. AD 66, a revolt broke out by the Jews. The zealots led a revolt. They wanted to get rid of the Roman overlords. And the the Romans kind of played around with it for a couple of years. But then AD 70, they decided they were going to squash it. And so they sent Titus and they sent whole massive amount of troops to Jerusalem. And the Jews saw this massive army coming and so many of them flocked to the city inside the walls so that they could defend the city. And then just as Jesus predicted, Rome just surrounded the city. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know this desolation has come near. They surrounded the army and then just for months and months and months they cut off all supplies. So no food went in. Nothing. No no supplies going in or out. And so they were starving them out. That's why, alas, for women who were pregnant, for those who were nursing, infants in those days, it was reported that, I mean, they were so malnourished they couldn't feed their kid. And um, Josephus, as well as Tacitus, two non-Christian outside the Bible historians report that they turned and became cannibals of their own babies. And by the time Rome went into the city, there was almost no resistance because thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were dead. Josephus, who's prone to overestimate a little bit and exaggerate, he said that a million people had been killed. Tacitus said 500,000. Either way, genocide. Massive genocide. Months of starving them out. 
And all of this is in fulfillment of what verse 23, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Deuteronomy 28 warned that an abandonment of God would bring judgment. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see little judgments here and they're exiled here and they're exiled here, but they come back. Jesus is patient with them. The Father is patient with them. But it says, Deuteronomy 28, if they will not walk before the Lord, that judgment would come like an eagle. That's the sign of Roman legions. And so after 1,500 years of waiting and pleading with the Jews, God brought judgment and the holy city was annihilated. But interestingly, almost no Christians died. Why? How how is that? The book of Acts tells us there's thousands. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people saved. Later in the book, there's more thousands that are saved. So how did they not die? What's going on? How were they not killed? It's because in 66 AD, remembering the words of Jesus, And reading them in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which they had by that time, they read this. They understand this warning of Jesus. They see the Romans coming and they got out. They left. They fled to Pella, Jordan. And refuge there. And so so the, the, the Christians were not killed by and large. But that's besides. Why did Jesus, you know, hammer so hard on the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem specifically. Why is he hammering on that so hard here? Because they had been the focus of the nation of Israel's hopes. And to see them destroyed was to see God's verdict against the nation. They had whored themselves out after lowercase g, other gods, They had killed the Son of God, the Messiah that had been promised to them. They had killed Him, killed Him. And now the supposed people of God are persecuting the real people of God, the followers of Christ. And so AD 70, temple destroyed, gone, ripped apart. That ended Judaism as practiced at that time. Judaism today is not practiced this way. Nobody goes to Jerusalem at Passover. Nobody sacrifices anymore. Nobody goes to the high priest. There is no temple. Judaism, as it was practiced, is over. There's not going to be some revival of Judaism someday. That's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is that we don't need a temple anymore because Jesus is our temple. We don't need priests anymore because Jesus is our high priest. We don't need sacrifices because we have Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the center of our faith is not a place, it's a person. And in destroying the city and the temple, God was pointing to this. He was pointing to the true temple where God was fully with man. Jesus. But again, Jerusalem was a foreshadowing of what was to come. It's a, it's a dark day. The judgment that will befall the world at the second coming of Christ. All right, so it's a foreshadowing of that, and so now Jesus turns to that. Look at verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. I mean, this is cataclysmic. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And so note that there at the end of verse 28. For all the calamity, for all the foreboding that the end will have for Christians, it's time to straighten up. It's time to raise our heads because our redemption is drawing near. Like this is what we've been waiting for. You've got Jesus, the Son of Man, Daniel 7 language that John read earlier. He's going to crack the skies and He's going to come in power with great glory. And He's going to issue in the new heavens and the new earth. And so sin and injustice and tyranny and evil and oppression and death, they do not continue on forever. Death will be dead. It's already been laid in the grave. And Jesus died and rose again. And so all that's gone wrong will be made right. This is our hope. This is what we're longing for. And so Mark Dever says, the most important aspect of the end of the world is not anything in the world of politics. It's not death, destruction, rapture. It's not armies or Armageddon or Antichrist at the UN. The most important aspect of the end of the world is the return of Christ. Jesus is coming again. This is good news. This is wonderful news. This is what we're waiting for. And when he comes, he's coming with all power. Power won't belong to Rome. It won't belong to the U.S. It won't belong to some other interim power. All of it will belong to the Lord God himself. And the liberation that we've begun to know in part in this world will find completion. And so J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop of Liverpool, puts it well when he writes, however terrible the signs of Christ's second coming may be to the impenitent, they need not strike terror into the ear of the true believer. They ought rather to fill him with joy. They ought to remind him that his complete deliverance from sin, the world and the devil is close at hand and that he shall soon bid an eternal farewell to sickness and sorrow and death and temptation. The very hour that the worldly man's hope shall perish shall be the hour when the believer's hope shall be exchanged for joyful certainty and full possession. We do not fear the end. We look forward to the end. Even amongst craziness and difficulty and calamitous things, it will be a good day for believers. And when he comes, we've already studied this chapter 17, there will be no doubt that he's here. No one's going to wonder if he's here. It'll be unmistakable. No one's saying, hey, you think this is it? There won't be any question. His appearing will be worldwide. There'll be no place that you can be on all of God's earth where you won't be aware of the fact that Christ has come. It'll be sudden so that no chart or diagram will be able to prepare you for this instantaneous moment when it comes. And it will be inescapable. There will be no place where one is able to hide and say, I'm sorry, I I missed it. I was out. And therefore, because of this, the day of the Lord that Christians long for, we look forward to, will be absolutely calamitous for those who are unprepared for it. As Alistair Begg puts it, every single person in this room will see Jesus face to face. The only question is whether we will meet him in the welcome of his friendship, having embraced him by grace through faith as our Savior or whether we will bow down under His foot, meeting Him as our eternal judge. And so how should we live then? 
Look at verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day therefore come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. And so number four in your notes, just straight out of this, watch yourself, stay awake and pray. All right, we, we don't want to be led astray by deceivers. We, 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 we don't want to uh, be terrified by birth pains. We want to understand the basics of what the end is going to be like. And then in light of all that, we want to watch ourselves. We want to stay awake and we want to pray. And what's remarkable to me about this section here is Jesus is saying like who he's talking to here. He's not going off on the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees as he normally does. Right? He's not talking to unrepentant sinners here. He's saying this to his own disciples, to John, to Peter, to James. You guys need to stay awake. You need to be watchful of yourself so that you're not living a life of dissipation and drunkenness and just caught up in the cares of this life and miss it. Miss that, like, and be surprised and it comes upon you like a trap. You lose sight of the most important things and the, what, what, what's going to last. And you replace it. You have all these little God replacements you're serving. And so if he's telling his disciples this. How much more does he need to tell? Do we need to hear it? We've got to watch ourselves. And stay awake. And pray. J.C. Ryle again. We're to live on our guard. Like men in an enemy's country. We remember that evil is about us and near us and in us. And that we have to contend daily with a treacherous heart. An ensnaring world and a busy devil. Remembering this, we must put on the whole armor of God and beware of spiritual drowsiness. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us watch and be sober-minded. So are you spiritually drowsy? Have you grown drowsy in your relationship to Christ? Have you become consumed with cares of this world such that it crowds out? I'm too busy for Christ. And saying that, you realize how absurd that is. But we just live it. We don't give voice to it. We don't give words to it. We just do it. Stay awake. Don't go drow don't don't grow drowsy. Watch yourselves. Check your heart. Live so that when Christ returns. Which verse 34 says it could be like a trap. Live so that when he returns, he finds us doing what we ought to be doing. I remember a story. The guy. Uh, let's see if I got a couple guys in here. 
I've got this thing where I've been walking through the Gospel of Mark with different um, guys over the last several years. Done it several times with different folks, but I often tell this story to to them as part of it. Um, but when I was in high school, I had uh, my uh, the, the basketball coach. He also led. We had something called the Bible Club, and um, he led that. And um, he said, "I'll try to tone back the graphic nature of how he said it." for the context of little ears in here. Um, but he was talking to a group of guys and he just basically asked us a, a, a pointed question, very pointed question of in that moment, would we be happy to meet the Lord descending at that moment? If we were engaging in this one particular thing. That's a question we need to ask ourselves different things in our lives. If Jesus cracked the skies right now, are we going to be happy to herald him in in that? Let that haunt you in a good way. So that you don't go drowsy. So that you're washing yourself. So you're not consumed with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Stay awake. And so Christ is coming. Everybody wants to answer the question of when? He doesn't tell us. He just tells us how it's going to be. And he really wants us to answer a bigger question of, like, it's going to happen. Are you ready? And for the non-believer, that should be unsettling. This should scare the fire out of you. But for the believer, this should be a happy day. Yeah, there's going to be things going around and it's going to be bad, but Jesus is going to crack the skies and he's done. We get all freaked out about Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, there's no more sin. And when he comes, there's no more death. And when he comes, there's no more sorrow. Tears will be wiped away. He's coming back. We long for that. We look forward to that. And that we do that because deep down, we know that death is not natural. In this world, we talk about, you know, death's part of life. It's just how it works. Not how God created the world. Humans were not created to die. We die because sin exists. But when sin is no more, there'll be no more death. And then we can say, where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? Right now, there is a sting. Right now, it hurts. But there's coming a day when there will be no more and there'll be no more pain. Death will be no more. Sin will be no more. Tyranny will be no more. And there'll be shalom. And there'll be perfect fellowship with God and a perfect fellowship with each other. That is all believers. It'll be a true brotherhood of mankind on the new heavens and the new earth. Perfect harmony with nature and agriculture. The world and the earth will function as it's supposed to because the earth itself will be remade and redeemed. It'll be perfect cultural development for all eternity. We won't be floating around on clouds. There'll be life. There'll be culture. There'll be work. But we'll love it. And there'll be perfect rest and there'll be perfect work. This is where we're headed. The history of reality, the story, is beginning, middle, end, but that's really beginning. It's a, it's a back to the beginning. Garden of Eden comes back. Paradise will be restored. In Adam, paradise was lost. In Christ, paradise will be restored. And so it's beginning, middle, new beginning. As much as it's the end of the world, it's a new beginning. Christ returns. Things are made right. And so quoting the disciple John in the book of Revelation, Maranatha, 
Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, may you help us to not be consumed with the things of this world. Cares of this life drown out the important things of this life. And Father, we know that you are concerned with everything from the smallest to the biggest thing, Father. You're involved, you care about it. But help us to care most about what you care most about, and that's about yourself being glorified, your son being worshipped, and your people growing in grace and bringing more people into the kingdom. Help us, God, to focus on the main things. Help us to look forward to your return. Help us to know what, a little bit of what that will look like and help us to not be carried away with craziness. But instead... Stay focused on you and on how we are to now live in light of your return. And Father, as we take a moment to just confess our time, our, our spiritual drowsiness that we're prone to, our apathy are just straight up disregard for you. Hear us and forgive us as we confess silently.